Hello, and welcome to Your Shelf or Mine. I'm Becky Standel, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. Today, I'm going to be talking with John C. Hughes, the Chief Historian for Legacy Washington at the Office of the Secretary of State, about his new book, Julia Butler Hansen, A Trailblazing Washington Politician. The book is available to purchase at the Secretary of State's online bookstore, sos.wa.gov slash store, and we will also soon have a copy available for checkout from the library. Before we get to that conversation, I wanted to give some quick updates from the library. We have extended our phone hours to 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can call us at 360-442-5300 for help placing requests for books or movies, to get assistance with our online resources, or to ask a reference question. Our library drive-thru continues to be open Monday through Saturday. Our hours for drive-thru are Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and Tuesdays and Thursdays, 1 to 4. You can check out our YouTube page for instructions on how to request a library sampler to pick up and drive-thru, and for our latest craft videos and garden talks with Austin. We'll also be having a special drive-thru with Santa on Saturday, December 19th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., you can come through drive through with your kiddos, say hello to Santa, and get a free book and candy cane courtesy of Santa's Elves with the Longview Library Foundation. And with that, here's my conversation with John C. Hughes. Your shelf for mine, talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for mine. Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for mine. Your shelf for mine. Hello, and welcome to your shelf. And mine. <laughs> I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And this is John Hughes. I'm the Chief Historian for the Office of the Secretary of State. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. I have a lot of fond memories of the Longview Public Library from my two years in Longview in 7th and 8th grade. Oh, what school did you go to? Uh, Monticello Junior High then. We call them middle schools now. Yeah, cool. Yeah, my I mom, like, my I mom like... was an executive with the telephone company for two years on loan to Longview for a couple of years, so I went to junior high school there. Lived along Lake Sacagawea, had a wonderful time. Nice. Where where did you grow up otherwise? Uh, Grace Harbor, Aberdeen. And that's where your, your career started, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So we're here to talk about your new book about Julia Butler Hansen. Um, but before we do that, can you tell us a bit about um, your background and the work that you do? Sure. Um, well, I started out to be a, a history teacher and ended up as a newspaper man. Um, in 1966, I got a full-time job after college in the Air Force at the Aberdeen Daily World as a political reporter. And 42 years later, I retired as editor and publisher. And then uh, former Secretary of State Sam Reed made me an offer I couldn't refuse because I I loved history and written books for all those years about politics and in Grace Harbor's colorful history, and I got this job in 2008 as chief historian for the oral history program at the Secretary of State called Legacy Washington, and I've had just a, a wonderful time 
for the past 12 years. I hope to do it for quite a while longer. We've done uh, full-scale biographies of former Governor Booth Gardner, former Senator Slade Gorton, former Governor John Spellman, and in some other really interesting people. Um, one was a civil rights uh, pioneer in Kitsap County named Lillian Walker, who was sort of the Rosa Parks of Bremerton. Uh, and now, um, some all these years after I first met Julia Butler Hansen, we finally finished this this full-scale biography of her, and she was just a remarkable person in my life. Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. I thought it was fascinating. I like in the beginning you talk about how you could just write a whole book about her based on anecdotes, but and I think those those stories were my favorite part. Oh, they're they're amazing. And as I said, uh, former uh, state senator Sid Snyder from Long Beach said the added advantage of all the stories about Julia is that if they were if they weren't true, they probably could have been because she was just such a a complicated, feisty, fascinating character, including the story that that in 1939. When she was a freshman in the state legislature and in line for a committee, a guy from Seattle, a fellow legislator, confronted her and said that that she didn't deserve that seat because, A, she wasn't from Seattle, and, B, she wasn't a woman. And Julia said, well, can I do the job? And he said, well, yes. And she said, well, why don't you take off your glasses because I'm going to smack you. And legend has it that she she smacked the guy, and it wasn't the first time. Oh, that's funny. Um, could you give like a brief overview for people listening um, about who Julia Butler Hansen was and what made you sure. interested in, in her story? Uh, Julia was born in 1907 uh, in Portland, and that only in Portland instead of Cath Lambert because her mother wanted to have the, the baby at a, at a hospital. But she spent all of her growing up years in, in Kathlamet along the Columbia, uh, which I think is just a magical place. Uh, uh, the first time I visited Julia at her home in about 1968 was the first time I'd been to Kathlamet. And I drove from Aberdeen all along Long Beach and then down through Nacelle and Skamakaway, and it was, it was just amazing. Uh, but um, she became a, um, she was a, a, a very, very bright girl, skipped a grade in school, graduated from high school a year early, uh, went off to what was then um, Oregon Agricultural College to study journalism, uh, bounced between uh, what's now OSU and the University of Washington a couple of times for financial reasons during the, at the outbreak of the Depression, um, got a degree in home economics because she and her mother uh, decided that it would be a really rough uh, road to hoe for road to hoe for women in journalism started working um, for the Catholic, the Wakaka County engineer's office. And uh, pretty quickly she got to know all the road crews. And, and a lot of the guys said that they thought Julia could have driven a road grader if they'd have given her the chance. And that's where she really acquired her expertise in highway planning because back then there were practically no roads in Wakayakum County. The Columbia River were the roads, uh, delivering mail, getting back and forth to Longview. But um, she landed a job at, as a bill clerk in the legislature and then went to the code revisor's office and had this epiphany that someday she'd legislature, and it didn't take long. Uh, first, she became the first woman elected to the Kathlamet Town Council. 
then in 1938, um, uh, elected to the Washington House of Representatives. And by 1949, she was the most powerful woman in the Washington legislature and the first woman to head the uh, Legislative Roads and Bridges Committee. So her trajectory was just amazing. In fact, uh, after four years in the legislature, she was a, a bona fide contender for Speaker of the House. Pretty remarkable woman. Yeah. And you said um, she won 42 elections? 40, uh, when I added this up, I, it was amazing that there was from the town council to the state legislature to the United States Congress, if you count primary elections, nobody laid a glove on Julia Butler Hansen 42 times. And interestingly, since we're in speaking about Longview in your marvelous library, Cowlitz County w was even more solid for Julia than Wakayakum County. There were a lot of uh, unreconstructed old Republicans, even in the even during the Depression, out there on Puget Island and Deep River and down there. So, but Cowlitz was just her stronghold from all the way from the legislative years in 1938 through her last run for Congress in 1972. Julia did something amazing. She even carried Lewis County. Talk about rock rib Republicans. <laughs> she was a kind of a New Deal Democrat, a, a, a country, country mouse Democrat that the Republicans could vote for because she really delivered. I, I guess I should skip forward. When, the, um, when she became the, the chairman of the House Highways, Roads, and Bridges Committee, uh, that was front-page news in the Seattle Times because, first, a woman had never done it, and secondly, because uh, notwithstanding the fact that she was female, she had remarkable expertise. During the war, when the, the county engineer was called off to serve in uh, public service in the military, Julia took over as acting county engineer. And, wow. by, and by 1951, when planning started for the interstate highway system, uh, and that which really accelerated with the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952, Julia became the chairman of the 11 Western States Highway Planning Committee. And that was, that sent her all America from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. to Phoenix, Los Angeles. And her, her early on there, the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times said that she was uh, a remarkably, a remarkably skilled, um, person in terms of highway plan. One of the things I kept thinking reading through like her history was all how much all of the legislation she passed and the things that she did really like you can see the influence in like my life or the, the things that she did well, as a politician. It's really that's re really interesting. And, and uh, I'm uh, grateful to hear you say that because she was uh, also um, for her time a remarkable feminist. Her mother, by the way, I wrote in the book that her mother, Maud Kimball Butler, who was elected county school superintendent in Wakayakum County at the age of 23, the first woman to hold that office, and gallingly to Maud and Julia's grandmother, also a suffragist, they couldn't vote for themselves. Yeah, women, did, women didn't get the vote until 1910, and how galling that was. And then when Maud had Julia, some of the old fogies said that she ought to not be school superintendent any longer because that was unseemly for a woman to be great with child and having this responsible job. And Maude said, fooey on that. 
Maud, by the way, was just a remarkable figure. She went on to become a deputy superintendent of public instruction. She was a remarkable watercolorist at the Julie Butler Hanson home in Kathlamet, uh, which is open periodically, and I, at least I hope it'll be open again after this pandemic. There's a, a, a fascinating collection of Maud's watercolors. So Julia had this, this pioneer grandmother and her mother, uh, these role models as a feminist. And when in during the legislature in about 1942, I believe, it was that she pushed through a bill. She and the seven other women in the in the Washington legislature pushed through a bill that mandated that in both political parties, if the, the chairman of the Democratic committee was a male, the vice chairman had to be a female and vice versa. And that law is still in effect today. Then she went on to, um, with her other powerful interest in education, mandated um, contractual uh, contractual obligations between school districts and teachers, um, mandated kindergartens and school lunch programs, busing programs, advances in teacher pensions. Um, the Washington Education Association ought to have a special award or a or a, a statue somewhere of Julia Butler Hanson because between Julia and her formidable mother, they advanced the cause of education and, and teachers dramatically in Washington State. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. I feel like a lot of the women like of her generation who got into politics um, did so because their husbands or their fathers were politicians, and I like the story of her becoming involved because her mother was. Absolutely. That's really unique. You know, and the there was a congressional biography, a uh, chapter in a congressional biography of, of women in Congress that that was really well done, but but remarked that Julia was uh, when it came time for um, to promote the Equal Rights Amendment and other um, advances in the 1960s, they they remarked that Julia was not a traditional feminist, and that's that that's both true and untrue. She was a feminist of her times. So on the one hand, Julia was sort of annoyed that a lot of the young firebrand women out there were not shaving their legs or or dressing as she thought was appropriate. The brawlessness was not something that went down well with Julia Butler Hansen. But she was absolutely in the trenches on equal pay and equal rights. She played a key role together with uh, Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Bain and Martha Griffiths of Michigan in, in pushing through the Equal Rights Amendment. So she was uh, a woman of her time dealing with a lot of sexism. And I, I, the very fact that when in 1949, when she got this key chairmanship, that it was such a big deal, like gee whiz, she's a woman and she's a, a highways committee chairman. And then... Um, the same thing happened again when she became the second woman elected to Congress in 1960. There was a lot of those uh, those kinds of stories that were tinged with sexism. Julia really um, bristled at all the stories that were describing women legislators as um, uh, gray-haired or grandmotherly. Or There was a one really shocking story I found that the Patsy of Hawaii, when she was elected to Congress, this this 
very attractive Asian woman. Uh, one story in, I believe, um, the Los Angeles Times described her as the slow-eyed clamor girl of Congress. And, and Julia said that she wished for all the journalists who were writing stereotyping women as being gray-haired or slender or or buxom or whatever adjectives they were using, that they would write some stories about uh, uh, pot-bellied men with thinning <laughs> hair. That, uh-huh. that she thought that would be only fair. And, uh, and that, that's just the way she was. Uh, she was just so – she could be such a shapeshifter. I remember being at a longshore hall in Longview with her on the campaign trail, and she smoked like a chimney. And mm-hmm. every, most people smoked back in the day, but Julie had been addicted to smoking for better or worse in, in, in college. So she sort of pulled up a stool and all the longshore guys gathered around her because they were huge supporters. And she, a guy offered her a light with his Zippo lighter and, and they just smoked and talked and told stories. And then my mother was uh, the president of the Santa Club in Aberdeen. Zanta was sort of like Rotary Club for women because women couldn't be in a Rotary International then. So the business and professional women in Zanta Club were where professional women met. And I remember going to a Zanta Club meeting that my mom presided over, and there was Julia, who was kind of like your model of corsage-wearing, tea-sipping decorum. And so the (laughs) difference between her two personas was just Mm -hmm. fascinating. It wasn't an act. It was just... How she could yeah. she, she could shift. There's a great uh, moment in this book about Gregory Peck. Yeah, uh, the, the Atticus Finch came to Longview in 1968 <laughs> to to, ho- to keynote a fundraiser for Julia mm-hmm. because she had been in her role as chairwoman of the uh, interior, the subcommittee on interior and related agencies appropriations. And the, the Screen Actors Guild was so grateful for Julia for the advances that she had pushed through for the um, the Kennedy Center, the performing arts. That, that you know, The pictures of, of Gregory Peck and Julia are, are really uh, charming because he never strayed from her side and gave an absolute stem winder of a speech um, at, at that meeting talking about the arts and their importance. Yeah, I know it was one of the highlights of her life because she she had really admired Gregory Peck from not just from To Kill a Mockingbird, but from Twelve O'Clock High and Roman Holiday and all those great movies. And, and like a girl who grew up in the the twenties with the advent of the movies, the Kath Lamont movie theater was was very dear to her heart. Yeah, I like that um, you put in about she like wrote him a letter and asked if he would do this event. She's like, you probably don't know who who I am. And he's like, oh, I know who you she are. Knew who she, was. <laughs> she knew who she was, which uh-huh. is a great story that, that has been told by so many people who have written about Julia that was really famous. In 1968, when Richard Nixon, as president-elect, picked Alaska Governor Walter Hickel to be his secretary of the interior, well, a bunch of reporters waylaid Hickel at SeaTac Airport on his way to D.C. to take up his post. And the lead guy said, well, what do you think of Julia Butler Hansen's view, views on interior appropriations? And Hickel famously said, Julia who? <laughs> and the Los Angeles Times wrote a story the next day that said that of all the, the uh, mistakes that an incoming secretary of the interior could make, 
that everyone who was anyone in Washington, D.C. knew who Julia Butler Hansen was. She was a master of the diplomatic, of the parliamentary process, and that she, her committee controlled, get this, Fish and Wildlife, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Bureau of Mines, Smithsonian Institution, U.S. Forest Service, National Parks, to billions upon billions. And in the U.S. Senate, the chairman of Interior Appropriations was Henry M. Jackson. So between Scoop Jackson and Julia Butler Hansen, they had a lockdown on all the agency spending that really mattered to the Northwest. Incidentally, um, I discovered in this research that on, Ju- on Julia's uh, say-so in her committee, the funding was appropriated for the first seismic monitors on Mount St. Helens. And it was a really a prescient moment that the, yeah. there was a, a guy who appeared before the committee and said, hey, these are important because we never know when that thing's going to blow its top. And it, it, it was really an interesting moment. Yeah. I think the thing that was most fascinating to me about this for the books that I've written, um, the, the book that I wrote of, about Booth Gardner was largely based on um, – Research of reports and uh, the source of firsthand interviews, oral history interviews, and the like. But with Julia, her son David, who still owns and maintains the Hanson House in, on Main Street in Kaplamet, is a retired Fort Vancouver historian. And he had kept all of his mother's and his grandmother's diaries. Now, you're nodding, Becky. Yeah, that was like the most that, interesting part that, to me. Yeah. As a raw librarian, to talk about original source material, uh-huh. and it was, and she could, she put everything in her diaries. They were just in it, it. They were so, so charming, and alternately charming, moving, and revealing about her growing up years. She started keeping these when she was 15 years old, and some of the last entries were written not long before her death in 1988. So for me, it was just this mother load of stuff. And then to have her mother's diaries sort of talking about Julia and, and it was really remarkable. I left out for a, for a library um, a podcast something that is really compelling. When Julia graduated from the University of Washington, she started a, with this degree in home economics, she went to Bellingham, where her mom had studied for her teaching degree, and started a tea room. Uh, bad timing in the middle of the Depression, so she ended up giving away most of the tea room's assets, the, the meals, to hungry people, and people would line up at the back door to get scraps every night. And it, So as a restaurant owner, um, she, she wasn't much of a success, but that was due to the, the conditions. So she moved back home to Kathlamet, and she started work on a historical novel for young readers called Singing Paddles. And this is a, a Oregon Trail story about uh, two youngsters and their family who come across the trail and land at Bernie's Retreat at Kathlamet along the Columbia. And it, it, it's dated now. I'm sure you've got copies at the Longview Library. We've got several here. Um, this, I had a, um, there's a Julia Butler Hansen Elementary School in Olympia, and I hooked up with them when I was almost finished with the, the book because I had collected several copies of Singing Paddles um, 
and wanted to make sure they had one. And the, the, the principal there said, yeah, we've got five or six copies. And he said, if you look at it, it's kind of dated because the settlers are referring to Indians as engines and savages and the like. And, and, um, you know, that was the outlook of the settlers. We know now, uh, the, uh, all the, the pitfalls of manifest destiny and what we did to, to Native Americans. But so the, the book is written through that lens, but it's still for all of its, um, uh, stereotypical notions of portrayals of Native Americans, it, it's still good writing and a good narrative. And she won in 1934 the equivalent of the Caldecott Award for that book. And that just, it was written up in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and she got $500. I think I computed on the inflation calculator. Yeah. That's like about $3,000 today. I mean, she... That she was had some savings then, could spend money on campaigns, and although you weren't spending much on campaigns, but she at the um, at the Hanson House in Kathlamet, there's a file cabinet full of unpublished manuscripts, uh, a sequel to Singing Paddles, another uh, book uh, called Cougar Valley, I think that that David Hanson had published in sort of a mimeograph kind of fashion, but I think it would be interesting for the Longview Library, the Kathlamet Library, to look into those ma- those manuscripts and see uh, what a trove there is there. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, we have um, the Longview Room collection at the the library. That's all um, the archives from uh, the planning of the city, and we have lots of other things from the history of Longview throughout the years. That would be like a really cool kind of addition to have some of that. It would. I, w- I was privileged to know John L. McClellan Jr., the re- former editor and publisher of the Longview Daily News and the Bellevue Journal American, because we had both served as trustees of the Washington State Historical Society. I found in researching um, the Julia Butler Hansen biography what a key role the influence of John M. McClellan Sr. and Jr. played in her career. Early on, they were, um, they endorsed her. They, um, they introduced her to movers and shakers, uh, all over Cowlitz County. And that was so that having both the business side of things and the labor side of things, um, both a foot in both camps was hugely important to Julia. In 1940, uh, this, the, the writer should remember his dates more clearly. It was, I believe, in 1946 that Governor Mon Walgren vetoed one of Julia's bills to increase teacher pensions. And the, um, she fought back vociferously. And the, the Walgren and his henchmen, uh, tried to get Julia expelled from the Cowlitz and Waukeakum County Democratic Central Committees. Um, well, she that was about the time she was pregnant and going through that. And the the upshot was that that she uh, that Walgren was defeated <laughs> for reelection and Julia Butler Hansen won another term. She was uh, while convalescing in the hospital after David Hansen's birth, 
the, the McClellans were among the first to visit her and say, you've got to run again. If you and she said, "Oh, this maybe it's time for me to go. I'm a new mom, and I've been through all this crucible of controversy." And they said, "Julia, this district needs you." And they, from while she was convalescing and, and being a new mom, the McClellans and their friends in Rotary and other places in business, no less, got this war chest together to help boost Julia for re-election. I just think that's just a, such a great story. Because I, I know so much about the Longview Daily News and from my years there delivering it and, and from my years as a newspaper publisher in my relationship with Bob Gaston and Ted Nat and, and what a great newspaper the, the Longview Daily News was in its heyday, winning that Pulitzer Prize for the Mount St. Helens uh, coverage, which was just voluminous. It, Everyone who had, had followed that story knew that they deserved it for the, what Bob Gaston and his crew had done there. So, but I, I just I, I loved it because the the reigning congressman in the third district was a newspaper man from Hoquiam whom I also knew named Russell V. Mack, and he was sort of a Eisenhower Republican and had, um, but at the same time he was a switch hitter as well. He uh, strongly backed Harry Truman's Marsh in the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. He was for public power, like Julia was, and so uh, people like uh, like John F. Kennedy, Jackson, and Magnuson, the Speaker of the House, kept urging Julia to run against Russell V. Mack um, because they thought they could they could reclaim that seat for the Democrats and in. On one hand, she thought that Russell B. Mack had done a pretty good job for the 3rd Congressional District. On the other hand, she was a loyal Democrat. And in 1958, she even announced that she was running, but then withdrew after her mother had a heart attack. So then you fast forward to 1960, and it doesn't get much more dramatic than Russell V. Mack dying in the well of the house, just collapsing over backwards. Um, and then there's this huge scramble for his seat. And Julia was, uh, there's a wonderful story that Sid Snyder, my old friend, the Long Beach grocer and the uh, former Senate minor- majority leader said that the, after Mac died, all the, all the newspapers were calling Julia saying, are you going to run? Are you mm-hmm. going to run? And she said, can't we let the gentleman just rest in peace for a little bit? There'll be time for politicking after he receives his, his just just accords at his funeral, and um, then we can talk maybe after a few weeks. Some of the others weren't that um, didn't have that civility, but when Julia announced it was uh, she won the primary handily, uh, won both the special election to fill that that unexpired term and a two-year term in her own right. And from then until 1974, when she didn't run again, she collected no less than 62% of the votes in every one of those elections. Yeah. It's amazing. That is amazing. And you speculate a little bit in the book that you, I don't know, this is what it came across as you thought that she could have defeated Mac if she had run. Oh, yeah. Well, John McClellan Jr. wrote a really interesting editorial in um, about Julia's decision to withdraw, he said that it would have been a really tight race. 
um, that that uh, in what would have happened had Julie had the district lost Julie as a legislator with all the power she had accrued by then. In 1955, she came within one vote of being the first woman elected Speaker of the House. And the reason she lost is because, the for two reasons, the guys were jealous of her, A, and B, she was a woman. They were, they were jealous of her, afraid of her, and she was a woman. And it took until 2020 for Lori Jenkins to be named to become the first female speaker of the Washington State House of Representatives. What a what a yeah. what does that say about history? And what does it say about Julia in 1955 that she was almost there? So, now, McClellan had mixed emotions. He he the like most of his fellow publishers, uh, the McClellans leaned Republican. Um, although they did a better job than most of having make, making certain that the editorial columns of the Longview Daily News um, played tried to play it down the middle, but um, he had mixed emotions. He didn't want to lose Julia in the legislature, and but he would have backed her. Yeah, that's really interesting. Another thing that came up, and you mentioned this uh, like a little bit ago about how. Um, like people didn't spend money or spend so much money on campaigning in her yeah. time. And you have that footnote at, like that compares like yeah. the more recent congressional runs and how much they millions, spend on the campaigns. Millions of dollars for these last two congressional races. That That's just breathtaking. Julia, after I believe it was after the campaign appearance by Gregory Peck that they raised $18,000. And Julia was sort of scandalized by that. And she said that that would be ridiculous to spend $18,000 on a congressional campaign. What would that mean? I don't have my inflation calculator at the hand, but that that is not millions and upon millions of dollars that Jamie Herrera Butler and and her opponent spent in, in that congressional race. It's fascinating to me, too, because something has happened in the 3rd Congressional District of Southwest Washington um, that um, both Grace Harbor in Cowlitz County, went narrowly for uh, Grace Harbor went for Trump, and I believe Cowlitz County did as well. So the 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 loss of labor power in the old third congressional district, and the the lack of um, of, of someone with that longtime moxie uh, that Julia had as a in a, as a Democratic Party leader. I think has really hurt the Democratic Party in in Southwest Washington. It's now clearly a swing district. That history of uh, redistricting is really interesting. Too. Oh, fascinating! It truly is. The uh, that played out in the Slade Gorton book as well, because Slade Gorton, as the uh, as the lead man for young Daniel J. Evans um, in in the Washington State House of Representatives, they pushed through a redistricting plan. Um, that today um, is done by an independent bipartisan bipartisan redistricting board. There's the 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 great one of the great stories, and I'm I was so pleased that that former governor and United States Senator Dan Evans um, ag- agreed to be interviewed at length for this book and to endorse it. But the Julia did something really gutsy in 1959. 
Dan Evans was a freshman legislator in the House of Representatives. She was chairman not only of the House Highways Committee, but chairman of the the interim committee on highways, bipartisan committee that met between sessions. There was an open seat, and she wanted Evans appointed to it because he was a civil engineer. And even the Republicans came to her and said, that's a Republican seat. That should go to somebody with more seniority. And she said, appoint him. Highways are a bipartisan issue. We need his expertise. And so if you fast forward to 1974 or 75, when Julia leads Congress, leads Congress, she was cleaning out her office one day and the phone rang and it was the, the familiar voice on the other end was Governor Evans's uh, baritone. And he said, I would like to name you to the Washington State Highways Commission and the Toll Bridge Authority. Would you please accept that? And she said, I'd be honored, Governor. And so she, in 1951, had her legislation was the legislation that created the bipartisan Washington State Highways Commission. And I thought that was the, the way that came yeah. circle was just so wonderful. Right. And how um, she like kind of mentored him. Exactly. And he, yeah. he said that she there's another great story. I the Julia was uh, uh, had a, a, a code that that women of either party, women politicians should not speak ill of one another. It, there was a sisterhood. And she had many friends across the aisle of, of both genders. But the, it's just so remarkable that, that she built this relationship with Dan Evans as a Republican. And she was so flummoxed by the by our first female governor, Dixie Lee Ray, who was a brilliant scientist, but really had a tin ear for politics. And within her first six months in office, Dixie had alienated the media, most of the members of the leadership of her own party, not to mention the Republican Party. And, and a lot of them heretofore had liked her because they wouldn't, weren't sure really whether she was a Democrat or Republican. And, um, so someone asked Julia to comment on Governor Ray's performance. She said, I would, ne- I would never speak that Governor Ray is, is Governor Ray, and I'm a con- member of Congress. And, and then I was uh, following Julia on a tour of the Port of Grace Harbor the next year, and I heard uh, Henry Soike, the manager of the Port of Grace Harbor, remark about a fight that, that Dixie Lee Ray had picked with Senator Magnuson and Julia sort of took a drag on a cigarette, looked at, at Soiki and said, she's an amateur. And I thought, I thought that was so, she's an amateur. That, that was so wonderful. Um, and I was glad that after all these years, that since that was something that I had overheard, I, I didn't deign to print at the time and could be uh-huh. good as off the record, but it's in the book and that's where it belonged. And Evan said that if the, in the wake of that last big round of redistricting that was done in a partisan way, the third congressional district that they created for Julia ran from the outskirts of Vancouver to Port Angeles on Strait of Juan de Fuca. And it, then it ran all the way up to the Cascades to, to North Bend. And Julia said, I might as well run for governor. And there were a lot of people shaking in their boots 
that she might really do it. And and Evan said that it was probably just Julia having some fun. But if she had run, that she would have been a very formidable candidate. And I guarantee you, uh, my historical perspective is that if Julia Butler Hansen had become Washington's first female governor, she would have done a very competent job because she understood the legislature inside and out 21 years. She understood municipal politics from those nearly eight years on the town council. She, she would have aced it. She was a very remarkable, complicated woman. Yeah. I think it's really great, too, that you, like, knew her personally and that had followed her as a journalist. I think that lends, like, a lot, like, a, well, like something she, extra to your book, too. I've met a lot of really amazing characters over the years. Uh, I, I, Henry M. Jackson uh, was a family friend. My, my two uncles were really active in the International Woodworkers of America. Um, Scoop Jackson had been to my house when I w- was a teenager. I, I later covered him and his presidential campaign. Uh, just a, a remarkable uh, person. When you look at Julia, looked at what might have been too. What if, uh, what if John Fitzgerald Kennedy in 1960 had picked his good friend Henry M. Jackson to be vice president? What if uh, Richard Nixon had picked Daniel J. Evans, the keynoter at the 1968 Republican National Convention, to be his vice president instead of Spiro T. Agnew, who was revealed to be uh, a confidence man. I mean, uh, there aren't enough adjectives to describe how crooked Spear Wagner was and how he disgraced the, the, the vice presidency of the United States, resi- resigning in, in, in shame. Uh, also, uh, Julia was good friends with Gerald R. Ford uh, across the aisle there. Uh, when I think about Jackson and, uh, and Kennedy, uh, there's another telling story about Julia, and that was that she would hugely admired John F. Kennedy. The, um, she was a classic new frontier. She bought into the, the whole, the whole new D, uh, the whole new frontier uh, agenda and helped advance it in Congress. But she was also offended by the way the Kennedy people treated, treated Vice President Johnson, who she had known, um, as a legislator, and early on um, when he was raising money for congressional candidates uh, as, as Senate Majority Leader and earlier as, as a member of Congress, and that really offended her sense of propriety. So Johnson, uh, as vice president, uh, was uh, taking Air Force Two to, um, to a dam dedication in eastern Washington in 1962 and asked Julia if she'd like to ride along. And she said, of course she would. And uh, they sort of bonded on that trip. And they, they were actually two peas in a pot. They were very, very forceful, liked alcohol, smoked, uh, cussed, told stories um, in, in sort of bigger-than-life characters. And when Johnson ascended to the presidency, boy, Julia was in the catbird seat there um, with, uh, she was in the Oval Office many times, um, talked with Johnson frequently by telephone. It, it was a really, there's a wonderful uh, photo and then a video that shows Lyndon Johnson 
in a ballroom at a reception holding his his toddler grandson. And when Julia walks into the room, he just makes a beeline for her <laughs> and forks over the kid. And so they're both bouncing the kid, and it, it, it it's really, really neat. Could you tell me, like, a little bit about your research process and how long it um, takes you to write a book? I know you had had one come out last year about um, women politicians in the state. Yep. It, 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 it's called Ahead of the Curve, and it was a book that began with uh, early-day suffragists. One was Josephine Corliss Preston, the first woman ever elected to statewide office in 1912 after women won the vote. Uh, and then we carried it forward with, with latter-day extraordinary women, Melinda Gates, Anamari Kalsay, president of the University of Washington, Stephanie Kuntz, the sociologist, um, the former governor uh, Chris Gregoire, who had pushed through the uh, landmark comparable worst settlement, um, the, the, even the playing field for women in, in, uh, in, in the employment. So, Books like that over the past 12 years, typically our team here, um, that was a chapter book uh, written with um, my uh, teammate Bob Young, who um, extraordinary journalist uh, the, the, who left the Seattle Times after being a part of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams there at the Times uh, to join Legacy Washington. So those books, typically the chapter books, take a couple of years to research and write with with two people and a researcher working on them. Books like the Slade Gorton biography would take about um, 18 months of, of pretty intense research based on oral history interviews. And then like you at your library, we have access to uh, newspapers.com and ancestry.com and uh, pretty terrific search engines. Here at the State Library, um, where I get to work at Tumwater, we also have microfilm yeah. of every newspaper in the state of Washington and many others since the territorial days. I can walk one floor down and, and the other things are available. The digital archives, um, which were pioneered by Secretary of State Sam Reed and enhanced by Secretary Wyman, are just the envy of, of the world in terms of access to information. So the kind of work that I'm doing now can be done more quickly because of those uh, those new uh, those sources and electronic and, uh, sources. I wrote a book um, in 1999 that was sort of a, a history of, of, of Bowdy Old Grace Harbor from its uh, Timbertown days and stories of serial killers and, uh, and mad hermits and houses of prostitution and all. And working uh, with uh, another staffer there, that took about four years to write. And that, in the, the, the sort of the pre-Internet era, the cusp of the Internet, man, there were a lot of visits to WSU Library and UW Libraries and in the basement and making copies and all that. So, Julia, if I, I, I'll never be able to do another book like Julia. I met Julia in 1960 when I was a freshman at Grace Harbor College. She'd just been elected to Congress. We, it, it, by happenstance, I had this lovely conversation with her that first day. 
and because she had arrived there to give a speech at the student forum, and she got there early, and so did I as a reporter for the student newspaper. And she told me that she loved Grace Harbor because she grew up in Kathlamet, and there were loggers and fishermen and Indians, and it always felt like home to her. So when I became a political reporter, um, we talked often. And then as I moved up and became a, a member of the editorial board with those editorial board meetings, and I visited her after she retired. And But these diaries, these journals, Becky, they're just they're just extraordinary. I, I She put everything in them. I mean, talking about um, all of her, uh, she was a Christian scientist, by the way, uh, which was really interesting to me. Um, her son, David, who's a, a Christian scientist, went to a Christian science university and actually practices his faith. Uh, Riley notes that when you're a scientist, you're not supposed to smoke, drink, or cuss. <laughs> <laughs> But, but Julia was, on the one hand, a prayerful Christian scientist. On the other hand, she smoked, drank, and cussed. And she put all of that in these these journals, starting at the age of 15. She was, uh, some of them are really intimate and charming. And I think they're dealing with things that, that girls and young women of every age could kind of identify with, although things are are racier today. She's she's like she's in college and she's fretting because all the boys she knows want to pet, mm-hmm. petting, and so she says, "Oh, to, she tells dear diary, uh, I I went out with somebody again last night. All they wanted to do was grope and pet, and and uh, God help me have the strength to to resist that and not give in and." Then she had obviously had an, uh, a relationship with a guy who wanted to go too far, and she hit the equivalent, the, the 1924 equivalent of the delete button, and she scissored out yeah. the in the diary. Wow. <laughs> I was that thinking was- when I was reading that part, like I kept uh, – really regular diaries from about that thing, like 15 to 20. Yeah. And I was like, I would never leave those. <laughs> I know. I know. It was just, it was just so charming. Yeah. And there was a long soliloquy when Franklin Delano Roosevelt died. There was another one with the onset of Pearl Harbor. There was one about having, a, she had a miscarriage um, and it, the pain of losing a child and the, and then her anger at the double dealing SOB mm-hmm. politicians who, who cheated her out of her being speaker and she really let her hair down. But then it, there's something that when her husband Henry, who was really a, a lovely guy, he was much older than her and, um, they had this, this, they just adored one another. And he, um, when he died, she stopped writing her journal for a while, and then she rediscovered it. She was cleaning out her desk in, in 1982, and she um, she started she decided to make some new entry. And uh, she thought to herself, "You can you, as you read it, you can hear her thinking out loud. Should she keep it for posterity, her journal, or burn it?" And here's what she wrote on February 14th, 1982. I'm not sure about burning it yet. But that's probably the most sensible thing to do, unless I preface this book with only read if you have an understanding heart, 
for this is the record of a of a passionate heart, a woman with a temper, sensitive to hurt and pain, a tumultuous soul. It's the story of weakness and strength, the pain and joy and love. My public goal was to serve the people I represented as lovingly, consistently, and capably as possible. I just tears welled up in my eyes when I when I read that, and it, it was just such a it was an intimate moment being able here as a historian. I had access to to the most private, intimate, soul searching, sad, and yet dedicated thoughts that a public, that a person could have. It was a real responsibility. There were there David Hansen as a fellow historian. He never once suggested that I leave something out, not once. And he read all of this. Uh, I wanted him to read this. I'm not a journalist anymore. So as a historian, when I have real live sources uh, that don't get much better than the, the, the subject's son, I made this pact with him. I said, um, if there's factual things, if I make factual errors, I want to know about them. The subjective things that I write, the observations, those are mine. You can't show, change those. And he was as good as, as his word. He spent hundreds of hours with me looking over this material. He's also, as a curator, just a fastidious fact checker. Let, this is a really good opportunity to, for me to say that in the first printing of this book, there are two errors. Mm-hmm. Robert Carroll, who is one of my favorite historians, who wrote this magisterial series of biographies of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, and the, in, if your listeners and patrons haven't read them, they should. They're just amazing. He also wrote a, wrote a book uh, called Working, about writing. Uh, it's the, one of the best books I've ever read about writing. The other one is Stephen King's book on writing. That's I've just, read Stephen uh, King's book. Oh, that's that is amazing. Uh-huh. I never even really liked Stephen King all that much. I saw Carrie and The Shining as movies, and they scared me to death. <laughs> but then after I read his book about writing, I went back and I read Carrie, and it scared me to death even more than seeing the movie. It was just incredible. Anyway, so uh, I digress. So the, the business about um, the errors. Gallingly, I pride myself with Dozens of people read the manuscript of this book. We went back and fact-checked stuff, and I was absolutely chagrined after the book with the printer was that I said in 1968, I remarked that was writing about Julie was, a, it was opposed to the Electoral College. She believed that, that the popular vote ought, ought to be the benchmark for electing uh, the President of the United States. Anyway, I wrote that in 1968 that that um, Richard M. Nixon had carried Washington State, and I realized that that last minute when it was too late that Hubert Humphrey had carried Washington State. And the other mistake I made was that I said that that there were four years different between Julia's grand namesake grandchildren. David corrected me on that after he got his copy of the book. So the best thing about selling a lot of books is that the first the first printing is sold out, the second printing is due to arrive here, and the errors are corrected. So I want my friends in Longview to know that mea culpa, mea culpa, uh-huh. I made two errors. 
they're not the worst errors I've ever made, but I'm still chagrined by them, and I'm glad they have a chance to correct them. And Robert Carroll and and said that no matter what you do, even the most fastidious, there will be errors, mm-hmm. and and correcting them is the important part. I can't begin to tell you what fun it is to get to talk with somebody from the Longview Public Library, because I was a kid who always had my nose in a book. In the two years I spent at Monticello Junior High School, and I just loved the library. It's so historic. It's so classic. And the librarians there were so great. The uh, the copy of Peyton Place was still behind uh, locked doors that, that you couldn't get at. That the librarians were going to make certain that, that no youth were corrupted by Metallica's sexual uh, fantasies. But oh. so, so I had a good time walking. That's wonderful. The um, I guess, you go ahead, Becky. I've, I was just going to ask you um, what you're working on now. What we're working next. on. Well, all of us have been sort of hunkered down. Uh, gallingly, we've got this terrific exhibit on the walls of the Secretary of State's office that talks about remarkable women. Mm-hmm. We've got this book ahead of the curve. And so we're marketing uh, the Julia book and ahead of the curve online doing virtual events. Ordinarily, we'd be having a uh, I, I hope we'd have a good crowd at the Longview Public Library for a book yeah. event at Kath Lamott in Vancouver and Aberdeen and Centroy and and Nacelle and but um and going out book selling events to those as well. But um we're doing well online. Uh so what we're redoubling our efforts is to work with the office of the superintendent of public instruction to um convert um ahead of the curve and Julia into curriculum for Washington State history students. Um, And and we've got a a couple more. Uh, I'm working now on a a profile of a really remarkable woman who is the director of the Veterans Affairs, Alfie Alvarado, and uh, and in her uh, remarkable task of trying to run four nursing homes with elderly veterans, and keep them safe in a, during a pandemic. And uh, my teammate Bob is working on uh, a couple of profiles as well. One is with with a fellow named Tom Ikeda, who is the director of Densho, the Japanese American internment history that corrects and collects oral histories dealing with the uh, the Japanese internment during World War II. So we're gonna we're gonna have a retreat after the first of the year. And talk about our next projects. If people uh, listening to this podcast and uh, have any suggestions, uh, the mandate here for Legacy Washington is that we're doing oral histories uh, and profiles with former statewide elected officials, uh, former members of Congress, um, former members of the judiciary. And then there's a, a really wonderful um, codicil that Sam Reed put in the statute that said that we can do um, we can focus on other people from all walks of life who have made an indelible contribution to Washington State history. So we went out and found Mrs. Uh, Lillian Walker, uh, 92 years old, uh, now sadly deceased, who uh, was the Rosa Parks of Kitsap County, and when uh, when her children were refused service 
at a at various businesses, uh, uh, everything from a, a, a fountain at a, a drugstore to uh, a, a grocery store. Um, she sued the rods out of the people who had discriminated uh, against black folks in Bremerton during the war and won uh, several landmark suits that advanced the cause of, of accommodation in not only in Kitsap County, but in the state of Washington. And that book, um, I hope you have it in your library. If you don't, uh, it's called, uh, I'll make sure you get one. Um, the uh, Booth Gardner book has just been reprinted as well. So we, there's another thing that we get to do that's really satisfying. A branch of the Office of the Secretary of State is the Talking Book Program in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So we've narrated um, oh, talking cool. books as well. I had never done that before, and that okay. was really a, really great to hear from people uh, who enjoyed the talking books. Do you do um, you do the Julia book? We haven't. We have because of the pandemic. Sure. We haven't scheduled Julia, but thanks for reminding me that that would be a good one. That would be yeah. good. I'm really hoping that um, when this pandemic abates and we can get the the vaccine out, that I, I guess the best thing that these books have taught us uh, ahead of the curve and the like is that um, when the pandemic is over. We just need to redouble our efforts because stories about remarkable women and what the suffragists did in 1910 to win the vote and then in 1920 to push through the 19th Amendment, those stories aren't going to go away. It really broke my heart when my daughters, who now are now in their 30s, came home from school and talked, said that their Washington State history classes were boring because Washington State history is anything but boring. I mean, the founding of Longview is a really remarkable story. John M. McCullen Jr. did that terrific book about R.A. Long and Longview and the planned community. Uh, by the way, I, when I got to reminiscing about my two years in Longview, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's anyone else there who will hear this podcast who remembers the year that Lake Sacagawea froze over and they were ice skating on the lake. And now, if I go back, that must have been about 1957 that that occurred. And I, I went looking the other day to see if online if I could see any pictures or any references to that. But I remember my kid sister on her skates out skating around like Sonia Henney on uh, on frozen Lake Sacagawea. And I wonder how often that's occurred in the history of Cowlitz County. Yeah. Man, heard that story? Uh-uh. I'll ask our um, our staff who work in the Longview Room collection and see if we have any photographs of that. That would be a hoot. That would mm-hmm. be a hoot. Well, Beck, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. This is really fun. And as I say, that that, that I had um, really good memories of the Longview Public Library and, and all the, the great people I met in Longview. I, in my spare time, besides delivering the Longview Daily News, I worked at the Longview Cafe for people whose name I remember as Nolte, near Corton's Music Store, which was on a corner there. I bought a guitar there and thought I could learn to play the guitar. But I had a wonderful time riding my bike all over Longview and across the bridge into Oregon and uh at the YMCA and all the friends I, I, I made. And I hope if there's any still around from uh, Monticello Junior High that uh, 
give me a call at the Office of the Secretary of State. I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to have you um, in person at the library sometime. That would be wonderful. Uh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Well, thank, thank you for coming on. Thank you, um, Becky. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Um, well, thanks, everybody, for listening to your show or mine. I'm Becky, and I've been um, talking with John Hughes from the Office of the Secretary of State. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. Studio time for Your Shelf or Mine is donated by KLOG, Cook and Country, and 101.5 The Wave. We at the Longview Public Library thank our local stations for their ongoing support. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldry from A Song for You. Find Megan on Facebook or Twitter at Meg McKeldry or online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry.